0: Begin at a somewhat reasonable hour. Good evening. Part two, as you see over here, part two of uh, Shabtai Tzvi, I guess. Still, this is the second part of the uh, introduction to the theme of the theological bubble. Everything that I said last week becomes vastly more complicated. Uh, The Kabbalah, as we talked tonight, we're talking about not messianism, Kabbalistic messianism. So, it's an extra adjective which indicates an infinitely higher degree of complexity. Um, the Kabbalah really comes out of the closet in the 13th century. And uh, that's a almost deliberate sort of thing. By its own self-definition, if you know anything about Jewish mysticism, it was meant to be kept in the closet. You understand? It's only for a few. Uh, some of you will be familiar with the famous Mishnah that says, do you not supposed to even teach or discuss these matters, except in a class consisting of one student? sometimes in the most two students. That means this is, an exo- this is an esoteric and not an exoteric kind of Torah. You and I are mostly familiar with what they call the nigla, which means the gemara, the chumash, and things like this, which we make the greatest efforts, the most strenuous efforts, to disseminate as widely as possible among the Jewish people. In the mysticism, you are talking about a different ethic in which uh, it's the opposite. It's supposed to be kept among the very few in public shouldn't know anything about it. And those who know t- don't talk and that sort of thing. Um, anybody knows the slightest thing about the Chumash, which you all do, uh, knows that there are mystical passages in the Bible, correct? Clearly mystical. In fact, the first passage in the Torah. God created heaven and earth. How did he do that? <laughs> you know, on TV you can just go wham and it comes into being. But how, but how does that happen? And that's not easy thing to, to, to answer. If you want to get very heavy, uh, you say God created something out of nothing. Science can't deal, analyze, with something out of nothing. But if you want to get even weirder than that, where does nothing come from? If you say nothing existed before God, do you tell me nothing is something and it was there before God? And that's also not true. So what do you do with that? So you can drive yourself crazy with this kind of business. And people have, including some of our heroes in this series. Um, so God really comes out of the closet in Jewish public square in the, in the 13th century, there's a lot to talk about, but obviously by time constraints I have to keep this short, sweet, and dumb. Um, as far as we can do what well, like I said before, we have references here and there in the Talmudic times, but very brief about a mystical doctrine, which, as I said before, is not to be shared with the public. Um, we have very brief um, statements in the response of the Geonim, to, to, to stuff that they don't want to talk about in public, things they do not want to put on paper which is interesting, you know? And therefore we get this idea of it as a secret sort of a business. What you and I today, what the academics call Kabbalah, is a term we usually associate with stuff that we start to begin to identify in the 1100s, you know, in the 12th century, with the Ravid, It's almost like a chain of command. The Ravid, his son Isaac the Blind, his two students as an Azriel, and then the Ramban, and then and the Ramban is a famous figure and he spreads all over the world and, and things like that. So, uh, what I mean to say is you don't really find this in normative uh, writing meant for uh, the general Jewish world that I can think of offhand, except most famously in the time of the Rambam, when the Rambam, who lived in the 1100s, died in 1205, I think, uh, wrote his famous book, the Mishneh Torah, which I'm sure everyone's heard of, and it's also very famous that he had critics and one of, the famous, one of the most famous critics was a contemporary of his, what they call the Ravid, Avram Ben David of Pasquier. Here's uh, southern France, right around there is where the Ravid lived. So this is not Sephardi, this is Provencal, which once upon a time existed. There was a, no, there was a whole Jewish community living right there in, in southern France. And uh, in two places, it's famous that the Ravid, uh, sort of like does something you're not supposed to do in, in, in legal discourse. The Rambam in one place talking about the of Hamikdash talks about whether you can go up to the Temple Mount today or not. As we know, this question is always there, and is there still kedusha on the top of the Temple Mount? And he says it's this, this or that, or he differentiates between different parts of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And the Rivan, who's critic uh, critiquing him, so like, he says, no, 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 he's wrong. This is the way it really is. This I got through nevuah. <laughs> you know That's not right. I mean, if you were to Disagree with me in Gemara? Bring me a raya, as they as they said when I was a kid, right? Show me the default in my argument. Adduce a, a different argument. What do you you know? That that that's cheating. <laughs> you can't it's like, oh, I got this. for There's there's another famous reference, uh, I think, in connection with Lula and Nesrug, I believe. You know, it's, uh, that I disagree with the Rambam and. It's because, as a result, recently the Ruach Hakodesh has begun to resonate in our base management. Once again, he's he's basically saying he got a, you know you can say what you want, but I got a uh, message from heaven. Otherwise, now if you're Moshe Rabbeinu, you can do that. This week's parsha happens to be Pinchas, and in this week's parsha they talk about the Benos Slavchad. And if you everybody will remember that at a certain point the daughters of Slavchad step forth and they say, what do we do now? We're daughters, we don't have any brothers and all that. And Moshe says, well, I got one of these. And he says, Right? He says, I'll, I'll call the boss and get back to you shortly. And this week's probably he does. Okay. That's why Moshe is Moshe. Locumbi Israel Right? In quote unquote normative Judaism, the supremacy and the uniqueness of Moses is a cardinal principle of the Maimonides. That's exactly it. Moshe can do that. I can't do that. <laughs> right? Rabbi Moshe Feinstein can't do that. And the rabbi can't do that. Well, he did. So, um, no, no, no. This is the beginning of a, of a phenomenon. And then we can start to trace with his son, Isaac the Blind. All these people live over here, which is right next to Spain, isn't it? See the map? There's southern France, where I'm pointing. And here's, excuse me, and here's the Pyrenees Mountains. And right over here, where I'm pointing right now, is what they call the county of Barcelona. Meaning, as you know, that's northeastern Spain, Catalonia, Aragon. And uh, a very famous Jewish area, by the way. The Ramban lived here in, in Girona, a little bit north of there. Uh, the Rajbah lived in Barcelona. It's a v- very well-known Jewish area. And uh, as we'll see, the, uh, what we today call the Kabbalah, we trace, you know, started here and then spread into here. Okay? Now, um, so what I'm pointing to is Kabbalah territory. Kabbalah territory. In, uh, in its first appearances. And for a long time, that's where it was. Uh, you know, in in Provence and in uh, southern Spain. It so happens it's taking place at the same time as the Maimonidean controversies. So uh, clever and cynical historians will then say, as I said before, the uh, right wing produced the Kabbalah out of the closet to nuke the left wing, which it certainly did. Right? This is what happened. Okay? Because as a result of the publication of Zohar and the the introduction of Kabbalistic discourse into the public square, uh, there begins the... The absolute and radical decline of Jewish rationalism and philosophy. Okay, I mean, that, that's what I just told you, the basic fact of Jewish history. You can talk about the famous philosophy books starting in the 900s with Sadigon, in the 1000s with the Chavis al and then culminating in the Murnavuchim of the Rambam, and things like that. When you get after 1200, when you, when you get in the 1300s, philosophy is on the way down, and by the early 1400s, there are, are, are no famous Jewish philosophers afterwards. That's, that's not what the public is interested in. It's, it's considered irrelevant. Now, I'm sharing all this because all this is going to affect Messianism, obviously. Um, one of the So, again, you have the raivet, then his son. His son had two famous disciples, Ez Real, who circulate around here, as you might find today, the Kabbalah Center, you know, and they get uh, students and uh, promising young uh, intellectuals to involve themselves in the study of this sort of thing, and one of them is Ramban, a young Spanish Talmud Chachem named Moshe Benachman, who goes on to become the biggest scholar, clearly, in Spain in the 1200s. I mean, that's kind of obvious, right? Ramban is up there. And so if he's into it, that gives an instant validation in the public square. You see, in the Torah world, particularly among the scholars, they say, oh, the Ramban, oh, okay, you know, I know it's not crazy, it's, it's not phony. Uh, but the Ramban, as we'll see, is very reticent to talk about it, probably doesn't write books about it. Now, the Kabbalah is full of extremely metaphoric language. This is going to be the big problem connected with everything connected with the Kabbalah down until today, and particularly with Messianism, and as we'll see in, in Time of Shabtai as well. Um, obviously, when you're talking about God, and heaven, and things like that. We can't describe it. It's beyond human conception. It really is. And yet, we want to, and so we end up saying, well, we'll use metaphors. But it's very hard to pinch yourself every moment and say, I'm saying this, but I don't literally mean this. I'm saying this, I don't really mean it. I'm saying this, I don't really mean it. After a while, you really mean it. right? Especially if the masses. Okay. A few intellectuals, maybe. But the Olam is a garland, the masses are always asses, and this is the way it goes? Now, um, the Ramban is a very interesting person, by the way. He, he dies in the twelve seventy, so he lives right through the early and, and middle of the 1200s. And as you perhaps know, uh, he wrote a famous commentary in the Chumash at the end of his life, after he moved to Israel. And in the introduction, I'm sure many people, I'm sure, have, uh, have read the introduction of the Ramban to the Chumash. He says, every once in a while, I'm going to deal with Kabbalistic matters. Just skip it. So if that's, you know, because you shouldn't get into it. So leave it out. So he's conflicted, you know. He wants to put it out there. What he means is for the very few that are, that will understand it, here it is, the rest of you don't don't pay attention. You know, that's the easiest way to make everybody jump into it right away, right? Just tell somebody, don't read this. Okay? So where's he coming from? He's conflicted. He wants to share, it, but, he, but, he, but he won't because he's an old-school Kabbalist and you're not supposed to talk about it in public. I mean, you're really not supposed to talk about it in public. In spite of that, um, it will get out there. And uh, as I said before, there's a super emphasis in Kabul on the metaphysical, on the metaphysical. Um, by definition, as soon as you're talking about the metaphysical, you're telling me what heaven looks like, what hell looks like, what the, uh, how God created the world, Sphe- spheres that God used in the creation of the world. Uh, as soon as you're talking about things like this, none of this is literal. Okay, The emphasis is not on the world of physics that you and I inhabit, but in the other world that we inhabit but can't see, how do you know? In other words, none of this can be empirically verified. No mystical statement is subject to any kind of a test. It's not scientific in that regard. That's where they came up with the word Kabbalah. you just got to be Kabbalah. You understand? You just take it on faith. It's very funny for Jews. And it was a big fight at that time. Um, in 1290 or so, no, it was right at These times, in the context of huge battles that were raging exactly in this map, in southern France and in northern Spain, over hashkafa issues, as we would say today, how far to take the Maimonideanism, how far to the left can you take it, how far to the right can you take the anti-Maimonideanism, which is most unusual in Jewish history because usually we're not a people that gets into passionate fights uh, over uh, theology. This is not who the Jews are. Now, today we happen to be living in a funny time where this is a true to a, a certain degree, in the late 20th and 21st century, perhaps. But usually, this is not the case. But it was in the 13th century, and there was a great thing called the Maimonidine controversy which raged for 100 years after the death of the Rambam. Really, the Rambam was from 1205 to 1304. Again, the Rambam died, I think, in 1205, and the end of this whole business uh, came with a cataclysm in, in the year 1304. And for 100 years in three famous rounds... There are books on this, three famous rounds. There was uh, huge fights that broke out between what you would call Maimonideans and anti-Maimonideans, or as they saw them in those days, left-wingers versus the right-wingers. And each side looked at, as is true today, each side looked with utter contempt on the other side. And uh, families broke up, uh, fights broke out in shoulders, sometimes people got killed. I mean, it was really uh, heavy-duty stuff over there. They told the church, the church burned the books of A, then B told in. then they burned the church to B. It was, it, it was a, a wild and crazy time. And as I say before, um, the right wing couldn't convince the left wing, let's put it that way. Um, and yet, in the middle of all this, the Zohar is published in Spain. Uh, now, published means somebody made a bunch of copies because there's no printing press at that time. In Spain, around the year, approximately around the year 1290. Uh, Immediately, at that time, questions were raised whether it's a forgery or not. Uh, we know this. There's a famous story, uh, it take me too long to go into detail, of Yitzhak Abako, a Kabbalist from Israel, uh, runs to Spain right away to try to trace down, he heard about this book, is it real or is it not? And he's writing this in 1290. And he said, I went to Toledo, where the rush has the yeshiva, and so half the guys in yeshiva said it's a forgery, the other half of the guys say in yeshiva, it's, it's real. I went to another town, I heard this, I went to another town, I heard that. It's already at that time. Questions were raised from day one. There's a long passage, it's very famous, uh, what's called the Testimony of Isaac Abaco, where he discussed already at that time. Without going into great uh, detail on that, the consensus formed that it's not a forgery. That's, that's what happened in history. Okay, There's no, no, no uh, petech fell down from heaven or something like that. The consensus formed, first in Spain and then around the rest of the Jewish world, that it's real. And so in that case... Uh, all of a sudden, the Zohar and everything connected with mysticism comes into the into the public square, as it were. It's not hidden behind doors. It's out there, um, not immediately, but over the course of a century, whoever wants to can get at this stuff. Um, now, the Zohar and all the literature connected with it, as I say before, is uh, primarily concerned with metaphysics, not with the physical. Just to give you a little uh, an, an example of what I'm talking about, and I'm only going to do one. One of the philosophical issues that raged for a hundred years, uh, which is an existential question, is what we call the tameya Mitzvahs. What are the reasons behind the 613 mitzvahs? Now, there's two ways of approaching it. One way is to say, just do it and shut up. Wake up in the morning, put in your fill in, if you bench left, you know, do this, do that, and and go to sleep. You know, what are you care? You're not God, you figure it out. But, you know, inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And the Rambam, very famously, in his Mernavuchim, the guy for Perplexed, in the third part, anyway, gives a famous list of, of reasons of some mitzvahs. But they seem very weak and, and, and led to a lot of content. They, they made more problems than they started. For example, he said, why do they have carbonists? There's such a heavy emphasis on, on, on sacrifices and the Chumash, and he said, well, you know, you got to understand, long ago, the Jews lived in primitive times. People believed in, in, in sacrifice. Without that, you couldn't have religion. So God, as a concession, gave them division. Really? You know, that ticked off a lot of people, you see. And these fights raged back and forth. The central problem emerged, and it's an existential problem, never goes away. The central problem emerged that an intelligent person wants to know why they're doing it. But as soon as you convince yourself you know why you're doing it, you kill the mitzvah." You understand? You killed the mitzvah. For example, if I keep Shabbos, if I'm told to keep Shabbos, to remember that God created the world in seven days. So I can skip the mitzvah and get to the to the end without doing that. Fine. I'll put up a sign that says, "Don't forget, God created the world in seven days." It'll it'll uh, you know now with the, now with the what do you call it the the cell phone you can really do it, isn't it, right? Just don't every Saturday morning let it go off and say God created the world in seven days. What do you need all this business with bayir or the thirty and All the mishagasan of the halacha, correct? Here's another famous one. What's there? All the kosher rules. If it's really about health, and the Ramam says it's about your health, fine, so I'll make sure I'll get healthy food, and then I can eat whatever I want, and so on and so forth. You can take it all across the six hundred thirty mitzvahs. If you think you know the reason for the mitzvah, you can skip the actual practice of the mitzvah and just go for, for the end. So on the other hand, nobody wants to be, or few people want to be just robots and say, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just doing this, and I'm stepping here, and I'm eating this, and I'm doing that also. So what do you do? This raged all the way through the 1200s. And believe it or not, people got really worked over this, and there were communities where they abandoned mitzvahs. You understand? People are very, there's a very famous story off the top of my head, that one of the Tosafists who wrote the smog, Moshe Coussi, visited Spain on, uh, on a, uh, he's from France, he visited Spain on a, uh, a talking tour, I guess. And uh, he saw, I saw the, the towns in which the, the, the mezuzahs and things like that, the film was thrown in the garbage can. Okay. Because obviously, somebody said like this, what's the purpose of the mezuzah? Remember, God protects the house. Sean, I got it. I don't have to do to hire somebody to write mezuzah, and then you ask the question, and which third of the wall should it be? And the thousand and one questions that rabbis get, you know, the mezuzah, this way or that way. Or that way or that, forget it, you know. Once you do that, you do across the board. And what do you do about this? When the Kabbalah emerges, they'll tell you like this, listen, this is the way it works. Get over this, guys. This is the way it works metaphysically. Uh, when God created the world, he created the physical as well as the metaphysical. That's pretty obvious. Why is it obvious? In the Middle Ages, the metaphysical is obvious. Because I'll tell you how they operated. Look at me. I'm alive. What's the difference between me and a corpse? Or a live dog and a dead dog? We both look exactly the same, but one is animated by a life force and the other isn't. Right? Me and a corpse right next to each other. One obviously has a life force and one doesn't. Where's the life force located? Is it in your nose? Is it in your foot? Where is it? You can't find it, can you? But It exists. See, so you see, there's something that's not physical, but it's real. That's the way Aristotle uh, uh, did it thousands of years ago. And the Middle Ages, for just take it for granted, okay? And so there's a physical, there's a metaphysical. We know what God used to create the physical universe, because we know what physics is. So there's atoms and neutrons and gravity and magnetism and all that business, right? We know. He's matter, as we would say. Not that I'm a physicist. Uh, what do you use to create the metaphysical world? The answer is the Torah. What do you mean the Torah? You can't see it, but Shabbos is a constituent element of the universe. And so is Shatnes. And so is, uh, you, know, uh, you know, the, the You get it? Uh, it may seem strange to you. That's your problem. It's, a, it's not only a mitzvah. It's not only something God wants you to do. It's a constitutive element of the universe. So just as if I took out of the universe uh, gravity, for example, it wouldn't exist anymore. By definition, if I removed matter from the physical universe, it wouldn't be in the universe. Similarly, if you removed Shabbos, or, well, you know, pick whatever mist you want, right? If I removed Shabbos, or, uh, or Yontif, or something like that, from the universe, if nobody practiced it, I mean, nobody practices it, the, word, the metaphysical would cease to exist, and, the, and then the physical world would cease to exist as an obvious result of that. How it would work out physically, we leave that to the dumb scientists. We, you know, we don't care about that. Uh, do you like Al Gore? When you want you want that way? Do you, do you, do you like a meteor smashing it? None, none of that matters. You see, but it'll be there. Now the question is like this: How do you know what you're saying is true? Is a kabbalah You just take it or you don't. And this idea got traction out there among the Jews. And has remained. And as a result, any question about why I'm keeping Shabbos becomes that pointless. <laughs> Correct? Any question why you're milking and Flechig or anything pointless. I know one thing, you better, you better put the fill in on, you better bench lift. Otherwise, boom, you see? Or whatever. And so I'm just trying to show you how metaphysical ideas had a powerful Im- impact on the public square in the high Middle Ages. And um, the Zohar is obviously uh, very heavily Im- influenced by this. Now the problem is, in these mystical writings and in the subsequent mystical writings, the language is lavdavgah, you know, the, the, the Kabbalists themselves always stress this, as I said before. But having read it, they then go wild. You see, the, 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 the wildest descriptions of things. And uh, the public, the masses at the mass level, they take it all literally, usually. You see, they take it all literally. Now ordinarily, you might say, who cares? But if it ends up with, mis- with messianic movements, and mess up movement where it's people endanger the existence of the entire Jewish community because they take off the guy or ruling the country because they're convinced that somebody claims to be a messiah and therefore he said blow up the world or, 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 or tell the guy where to go. Then all of a sudden it's not just a acute idea over here, as we will see. Um, as regards the Mashiach, the Messiah, it's back to the Gaonim and the de emphasis of the Maimonidean empiricism. Okay? So basically, forget this and up with this. Remember last week, I tried to give you the two more or less grand narratives. More or less. There are more, but the two main grand narratives. It's highly detailed things from the Gaonim. There'll be Mashiach and Yosef, and then this guy will kill him, and then they'll have a war over here, and the, the guy will do this, and there'll be a revolution here, and at that moment the Mashiach will come here, and it'll fly down, and it'll do T'chismesim, and all the rest of it. Versus the Rambam who says nobody knows what will happens, and you know, there still will be rich and poor, and you know, don't, 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 don't fly off the deep end. Um, With the rise of the Kabbalah, there's no question that the Maimonidean idea of the Mashiach is de-emphasized, and the know, with with, with extremely detailed descriptions and very colorful language of what's going to be, gets highly uh, emphasized over here. If anything, the Zohar intensifies the Gaonik narrative. Let me just give you one example. It so happens to be, I was in uh, New York a couple weeks ago, and I picked up something what I like very much, and that is what I'm holding in my hand, which is called Zohar Torah Targimim Lashat Kodesh. Which means that somebody in the Eichler, in you know, somebody in New York or in Israel uh, reorganized the text of the Zohar to help the average uh, Joe out there. And if you know anything about the I don't want to get too technical about this, but the um, uh the discussions that you have in the Zohar are out of order, is, is, you know, like the Gemara is. If I want to find something on Parshish Noach, it won't necessarily be in the Zohar or on Parshish Noach. It'll be somewhere else. You see, that, that's how it works. Gay okay, this, is, this is the Jewish literature. You know, the Rambam is the exception. He has everything in the right order. But usually, you just got to know, if you're familiar with the Medrash or the Gemara or elsewhere, you got to know that you're not necessarily going to find it where you think. And you could have a law about Gittin, for example, and it will appear in Hulin. I mean, There's every, every baby student of the Talmud knows this. So same thing in the Zohar. So what this guy did was he arranged it. He, he re- reorganized it according to the Pesukim, plus he put in the Kudos, which I always like. And this past week's Parsha, which was Baloch, is messianic, as I told you. You have the prophecy of Bilam. It's not the only uh, place in the Tanakh where you have messianic prophecies. But it's pretty much the only place in the Chumash, or at least explicitly so, right? And so I just said, you know, I'll have some fun. Let me see what's in the Zawar, and, or, and, and when, when Bilaam says, Erenu Erenu A star will burst forth from Yaakov, o'mochats pasimov, a that whole business. And he has a whole passage. It's too long to read. Besides, my wife will kill me if I read it all. And so I just want to call your attention to one paragraph uh, one, two, three, four. you know he gives a whole description of messianic- pro- uh, 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 process which involves like a comic book you know it's a wars and then this, and this blows up here. I just want to he talks about a star emerging. if you look at the third paragraph of that a certain star will appear in the middle of the sky, let's say Yakumel god I'm reading in the in, on the left hand side, which is the Hebrew translation of the Aramaic. A great king will emerge. He'll be more powerful and arrogant than the other kings, and he'll start wars on all sides. And then here's the one paragraph I just want to call your attention to, even though there's like 15 paragraphs on this subject. And it's it says, When this star will, will be uh, born, there'll be a big earthquake in Israel for 45 miles circumference around Jerusalem. As a result of these huge earthquakes, a cave will be revealed under the ground in that area. Out of the cave will shoot a huge flame which will burn the whole world. And from this cave will also emerge a giant bird which will rule the world. And it will be given very powerful. The angels in heaven will join him then will show and he'll be given the kingdom. And there's a lot more of these lines. Now, I just give you like a flash to show you that as I said before, this is taking the non my mind in there and tripling it, quadrupling it, you see? In other words, when people hear these things and they start to in the 13, 14, 1500s, this is what people say in Shul for drushes. You? understand? It's not the only thing they say drushes. By no means. There's also the Gemara, the Medrash, and all the rest of it. But a lot of stuff from the Zohar, especially when times are tough, people are looking for, you know, uh, good news. They say, oh boy, it's going to... Now, again, anybody intelligent knows the Zohar doesn't literally mean a bird will fly over here. It's a certain expression to try to convey an idea. On the contrary, an intelligent scholar will say, what's the metaphor of the bird? I mean, I can play with that, you can play with that also. But you know the but but the average Joe and Jane sitting in their shoulders like it's going to be a giant bird. It's going to bomb the world, <laughs> you know. And it's going to be Gavaldic because we're not going to be hurt and they're going to be hurt or something like that. And it takes the whole discussion of the messianic apocalyptic of the wars and things like this, you know, to new levels of complexity. Most dangerously, the Kabbalists revived the prophetic tradition, claimed to see, have messages from heaven, and so for the first time. We get people, and, and since since the Bible, more or less, that's a long time. And I'm talking again in the 12, 13, 14, 1500s. You get people who say they have messages from heaven. There's all kinds of versions. You can get a message from Elian Navi. You can get a message from this thing, from that thing. You know, it's various It depends on what plan your cell phone is. But the fact of the matter is, this is not your regular sort of thing. Problem is, obviously, how do you know? How do you know? I mean, when it's true, that's amazing, no question about it. But what if it's not true? And what are you going to do, say, well, I guess, you don't believe me? <laughs> that's the road to perdition, so what do you do? It's particularly dangerous in the field of messianism. A person steps forward and claims that he's told by heaven to be in Mashiach. How do you know? What is the exact line between heretical skepticism and healthy skepticism? Or if you prefer, faith versus credulity. Which is it? Now, a classic case of what I'm talking about is in the 1200s around this time in the Chivas rajbo, meaning of a famous person, very controversial today, Abraham Abulafia who lived in the uh, late 1200s, uh, I think he's born in 1240 something like that, and uh, who's was born in Spain and uh, in Saragossa. And a young age he already goes to Israel to see to find out where the ten lost tribes are located. By the way, he comes to the conclusion the Chinese and the Mongols are the Ten Lost Tribes. So if this is true, I don't want to be in the PLO. You know what I mean? Because one day they're gonna look. Anyway, the uh the fact of the matter is, the the, the fact of the matter is that uh he goes around and and the uh you know, let's put it this way. He learned nigla, and then he started getting involved in Anistra a little bit. And he went to, and he makes a circuit. I mean, there's a whole long biography of him. I and mean, he goes to Israel, and then he goes to Greece, he gets married, and then he goes to Italy. He ends up back in Spain, and where he throws himself in the Kabbalah. Well, here's a guy in the late 20s. And he gets very heavily in, in Barcelona. And he gets heavily into Kabbalistic stuff. And, um, and he uh, fasts a lot. And next thing you know, he's getting visions. Right? Which he claims is not a product of his imagination, but the real thing. And uh, he gets following. And uh, he writes books about his visions. And also, more importantly, how you can attain prof- prophecy uh, or whatever you wish to call it. You know, they might call it a different name. That's what it is. Now, if you want to get messages from upstairs, there's all kind of, they're, 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 believe me, this is popular today among certain circles. You can go online and say, you know, how to, how to become a prophet. They, they'll, 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 they'll still refund the Bluffy books. What's his name? Not Ari Levin. Who am I thinking of? All right, Kaplan, you know, I mean, he talks about this stuff in English, you know. So anyhow, he, he um, gets in all this business. Uh, and by the way, this is the problem with all these people. It's, it's never totally crazy. I mean, how do you know? He says he gets a message from heaven they he should go and convert the pope. The pope, Nicholas III. He goes to Rome, travels from Spain to Rome. I mean, you can't make this up. Travels from Spain to Rome. He tells the pope, I'm coming to convert you. The pope says, I don't want to talk to you. And he tells his guys to, to, to arrest him. And meanwhile, the Pope goes to his vacation spot where he drops dead. As a result, the guards are afraid to arrest him. Now they arrest him for a while, and then they don't, you know, they let him go. Ordinarily, a Jew would be cut to pieces like this. That's just people. Now, he didn't convert the Pope. But on the other hand, this is pretty weird, you know? There's always the problem. There's something epic out there, but it's never exactly what it's, what, what, what it's supposed to be. And then he ends up in Sicily in 1290s. And he starts to gather a big following in Palermo and make a base medrash, the Kabbalah center, as they would say today. Now, why am I mentioning all this? That, so, so people didn't know what to do. So they wrote to the biggest rabbi of the second half of the 1200s, without question, the Rajbo. Some know who the Rajba is. i take it from me that in his time, of Shlomo ben Adred of Barcelona was well, not just another rabbi. He had a he had a um, authority around the world, which we don't have anybody like that close to that today. There's nobody has authority around the world. I mean, he was the big authority among the right wing. He was the big authority among the left wing. He was super respected by the pro-Kabalists, the anti kabbalists the pro-philosophers, the anti-philosophers. In fact, the third Maimonidean controversy which took place in Provence in the 1290s was all about both sides appealing to the Rashma to rule in their favor. You understand? Because he had such authority... And He was is such a big person that if he'll say it, he'll carry the vast majority of the Jewish people with him. And the Rashba has thousands. This is published; this is well known. He has many thousands of responsa to all over the world. His questions from Russia in the 13th century, for example, you know, let alone from Israel and elsewhere. So this is a person of commanding influence. And they say there's this guy who claims. To be, and, and by the way, among other things, uh, the Rajab was not only a, a total master of. Rabbinics, you know, the Talmud, the, the, the Halacha and all the rest. I mean, a total master, the classic Rishon. But he's also knew Kabbalah very well. And they say there's this guy, and he's going to be a Kabbalist, and misses him, and he and all the rest of it. And the Rajah went crazy, and declared, war on him. You understand? And he said, the guy is nuts, and stay away from him. And, it's, and whatever he did, the Ruach HaTumah, and, and uh, he should be banned in Boston, which, which, which did happen to him because the Raj had such an authority. And he wrote a very famous responsum to teshuva, about this, in which he makes the case for being a cynic and a skeptic whenever people make these kind of claims. And he says, that's the glory of the Jewish people. We're, we're a nation of cynics and skeptics. He stands the story of the Chomosh on, on the head. You usually read the story. Oh, yeah, the Jews are terrible! Every five minutes, they don't believe Moshe here. They don't believe. It. No, it's good. They don't believe Moshe. <laughs> you understand? That's that's a good sign because otherwise, you're led by every Tom, Dick, and Harry to walks down the road. And even when Moshe does Nissan and the flaws, all them they still don't. And they're constantly calling them into a to on, on a test. Let me put it this way: the minute they cross the Red Sea, they say the water is salty. You stink. Let's go back to Egypt. And Moshe has to show them. You understand? No, that's a good sign. He says and it's a remarkable response, which I found online and could, you probably can't read it. I'll just I'll just make again from a long text one or two points. He says, uh <laughs> He said this guy is a novel, he's a low life and he should go straight to the devil. Uh, so some of them are Sicilian he's 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 storing these lies in Sicily. And we know he says the guy can't be a Novi because as he says on page tough test, that's the second page in front of you, the third paragraph That there's certain... The Chazal tell us that a person can't be a prophet unless he has certain qualities. And one of them is, he has to be a Chacham, he has to be an usher, and he has to be a Gibor. And this guy isn't. He has to be a a renowned scholar. Um, He has to be wealthy. He certainly wasn't wealthy. And he has to be a Gibor. Uh, Also, he says in the next paragraph, We in the 13th century, this is not the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. There's no nevuah nowadays. We don't live in a time... When when it could be zocher in the and he has backups for this. The rest of the paragraph. And second of all, you know, it, we never found a Novi went around and wrote Kabbalah books. You understand? Which he says contained a certain amount of correct stuff and a, and a lot of incorrect stuff. That's why it's a very interesting response. It's in English somewhere. Plus, you're not supposed. We say you can't get the outside of Israel. You have to be in, in Israel. And he goes on to say, <laughs> A guy should write these kind of books when he has no background. This is, this is, this is he's basically self-taught, which was more or less the case. Of course, he said like this, I have a teacher, it's Eliyam Navi, you know. So the is like, this is a lie, he's a novel, he's wicked. And he goes on at great lengths over here um, to make these kind of points. And he says that we Jews are not believers. You understand? Uh Roy Lakhishri is rock. He coshuv a get You have to have a stiff neck. We have to be a stiff neck people. Shlilosi some middle You don't listen to anything that sounds crazy. until you conduct a very thorough investigation. You see? And uh what does he say over here? He says, "Yisrael nochli dos emis ben yakavishmis nokhlan lisbola gosmashigim hamem medover." He says the Jews, who were stiff-necked people and, and, and not easy to convince, they'd rather go through the gulfs than fall for every uh, charlatan that comes down the road and tries this. So so, and even if things look like they're miraculous all the rest of it, check if it's not the Wizard of Oz. Check if it's not smoke and mirrors behind the screen. You understand? And don't rush... To do this now, and here you have the Rajput, who's an Orthodox rabbi. I want to remind you, and he say like this: He says, "Don't believe every." In fact, in fact, I said it wrong. Disbelieve everybody until they can really prove it. You know what I'm saying? Disbelieve makes this kind of statement. Somebody tells you they're talking fish and muncy. Disbelieve it until they can prove it. Be from Missouri and all the rest of it. And so when Moshe said, "He is," like I say, it's a long response. He he said, "Look at the Jewish people." Moshe said, "Hey, you lo yaminuli when at the burning bush." She said, they won't believe me, and God said, I guess, that's a good sign. <laughs> you understand? And you'll prove it to them. You'll do a bunch of miracles, you'll demonstrate that you're the real thing. Otherwise, why should they believe you? What do you think, they're a bunch of Cretans or whatever? So, you see already a leading figure in the 1200s, a long time ago, who himself was a, a master of the Kabbalah. I, I, I imagine, I don't know this, but I imagine the Raja was probably one of the biggest Kabbalah of his time. Uh, and he's very down. He says, anybody makes these claims is a novel. is a shame of Sharm Yerkov. Now, in later times, they said, Abul Afi is right. The later Kabbalists said that the Rajma got it wrong, or at least partially wrong. It's a very strange episode. You he talked you talk to a Kabbalist and they say, oh, I'm a big person. And so this shows you the problem of claims versus the impossibility of investigating them, and then they get angry for not believing in them. Right? Now, As I said, he makes the case for a healthy skepticism. This is not the only case. At the same time, there was a guy, Nissen ben Avram of Avila. Avila is, again, in northern Spain, who, again, he did Isis and Mosin. They say he did miracles. And each one of these people fasts a lot. I mean, they're not phonies in the Wizard of Oz sense that they're behind the scenes. They're eating uh, popcorn, you know. They went to the Mikva a thousand times a day. I mean, really. Or, excuse me, 970 times a day because Adam, Adam Elisha lived nine, I'm sorry, 9.30. Nine thirty. So on a nine thirty, says I think you go nine or thirty times. Bigger. So people said, "Wow, he's going nine or thirty times a day." I need a mathematician to tell me how long it would take in terms of time to to, to do that. Um, but nevertheless, these kind of things. That, and and uh, in both cases, by the way, Avram claim claim that he's a, a, he was sent by God to be a mashiach one time or another. And Nissen Ben Avram Avilah also was a very pious and holy person appeared, and he says he's the Mashiach, and the ghoul is coming in, I don't know, the 1294, he gave some kind of a date. And here's the problem. A lot of these guys give very close dates, and so the average person says like this, no one would make up a lie like that if it's about to be verified. If me, myself, and I now said in December of the year 2015, this and this is going to happen, because the cats must be telling the truth, because December's around the corner, pretty soon you would be exposed. So you see that they were not fakers in the western sense of the word, they really believed their own story, right? person really believed that somebody talked to him. Problem is, a lot of people followed this all over Spain, and um, some rabbis, rabbis, you know, the Rajma said, don't have nothing to do with it. Again, he has a famous response, you know, he says, I have to spend all my time putting out these uh, forest fires over here. Um, Of course, the date came and, and went and nothing happened. This, now here you see it, what, a, what a smart person the Rajwa was, not that he needs my uh, approval, but you can make the case, if I was paid I could definitely make the case, that this led to 1492. And he will ask me why? And I would answer that one of the, now this happened in 1294, one of the results was so many Jews believed so strongly in northern Spain that this guy was the real thing and the, and the ghoul is here, See, it's not like us looking back, you know, after eating ate a supper in Baltimore, Maryland, and you're sitting in a comfortable chair in a shoal. You know, they really believed it. And when it didn't happen, they were so disappointed that thousands converted to Christianity, including Abner Burgos, who, if you have any idea it is, not that I expect you to do so, came the number one Mishuman in Jewish history. Abner Burgos was a Rosh shiva in the time of the Rajbah. I'm trying to tell you, you know, the, he was a rabbi, Rosh and this and the other, and he. but he, he was so into this that he converted, and when he converted, he used all of his Torah knowledge to attack Judaism. He has these wonderful, meaning they're terrible books, <laughs> like the Merit Sedeq and others in Hebrew. They're full of tremendous lumps to prove the truths of Christianity and the untruths of Judaism. He started a movement for the church to get really active, really, really, really active in going after the Jews and forcing them to convert. This led over the course of time, historians will tell you this, over the course of time, to the outbreaks of 1391 when half the Jews were massacred, which, as we know, triggered what happened in 1492. So these kinds of things have the most awesome and terrible consequences, but not every it's like playing chess, not everybody can see past their nose. A great person can see past their nose. And as a result, when you get to Spain in the 1300s, there's a lot of these little Messiah types that pop up here and there, and they always get traction. There are some people, and sometimes more than some people, that believe in it. It's just a rule of history. Somebody makes a claim to Sheikh, you will get some people believe in it. And by the way, it's not always going to be uneducated people. They'll be from all classes, and when it explodes, when it doesn't happen... There's a tremendous disappointment, and many of the people are so committed to their belief that they abandon Judaism when it's all over. And um, as a result, um, in 1391, when the huge pogroms broke out all over Spain, the leaders of the Jewish people, well, there was really only one leader left. Most were killed. And the greatest Jew of the late 1300s, early 1400s, Chaznei Kreskes. This is a name that doesn't mean things to most uh, people because... Chazekret is the greatest Jewish philosopher of the Middle Ages, but again, This is my friends, this is the hardest book around. <laughs> Let's put it this way. I tried to crack this, and with a chavrus and all, this is the hardest sefer there is. That's heavy-duty philosophy. And you got to do your stuff over here. He, Chazekret is, uh, let me uh, use yeshiva language. Chazekret is the Rebbe and the Muki Yosef. <laughs> Does that, that sound good? He's the Talmud of the Ron. So he was from the leading elites, and he was the one who had to hold the fort for Judaism at a time when it was under the most incredible uh, pressure of violence and uh, physical violence and intellectual violence. We today, unfortunately, especially in Europe, are totally familiar with intellectual violence, correct? The Arabs, besides the physical attacks, you hear in the media and the, the, the Internet, you know, all these attacks on Judaism all the time, Yama Valayla. And that's what was going on at that time even more. And uh, I can just tell you this. A famous writer who lived at that time said that Kraskis was a great man when he spoke Rabim misyahadim <laughs> you understand? That was when he defended Judaism and he has, by the way, a whole debate like the Ramban, people are not familiar with the debate of Chazai de Kreskis uh, was recently translated from the Spanish into the Hebrew by a professor in Israel and uh, he is the one who makes the case for Judaism up and Christianity down. And it's amazing that he was allowed to say what he said. And what's really interesting is that in his book, the Ohr which again is the uh, by far the deepest uh, philosophy book of the Middle Ages, the Jewish Middle Ages, he makes the case over there that the Rambam, when he says there are thirteen principles and one of them is the coming of the Mashiach, is not true. The Mashiach is coming, he says. And I do believe it. it's not a principle of the Jewish religion. If you didn't have Messiah, you could still have Judaism. After all, you're keeping the messiahs because God said to do it. That's the end of it. I, if I remember correctly, he said the only principles in Judaism was the existence of God and and reward and punishment and maybe one other thing or something like that, you know? The machine, and there's no question in my mind, in my mind that the reason people of his stature de the messianic movement is tamp this stuff down because every nut coming down the road, you know, some guy walks out of shoal and, and he gets a crowd, you see? And so... Uh, I'll say it again. He believes in Mashiach, and in his book, he has a whole discussion on what he understands the messianic era to be. Very, very, very intellectual. But um, uh, it's. But don't think about it. In other words, it's 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 not one of the ikram of of Judaism, and so we leave Spain. In this terrible period of the 1300s, 1400s, where you have scholarly disbelief of false messiahs, but popular credulity. The the public believes it. And the public says, if this guy wasn't Mashiach, it's caused some technicality, but the next guy coming along will be. And this is just a problem of Jewish history. Even scholars were out to figure out when the Mashiach is coming, but that's a different thing altogether. Even Chazek Kreskis comes out, he tries to explain, besuk in one way or the other to say he's coming this year, but those are guesses. I'm talking about somebody standing for and saying, c'est moi, I am the Mashiach. Now, um, so by the time you finish the Middle Ages, there's thorough confusion, and that's as I see before, before the Kabbalah showed up in more intense form and intensified the confusion. Because after 1492, that's more or less when we say the Middle Ages is over, for convenience sake. After 1492, as we all know, there emerges for the first time in um, close to a thousand years, Eretz Israel as a Jewish center. Isn't that interesting? Throughout the Middle Ages, Israel had no Jews or few Jews or dumb Jews. Okay? Uh, It was a backwater. I'll give you an example. Somebody stand up and tell me a Rishon from Eretz Yisroh. Can't do it. You can show me people from Ashkenaz, from Germany and France. You can show me people from Spain or Italy. If you're very learned, you might show me a few people from Yoban, from Greece, from the Byzantine Empire. You can't tell me anybody from Eretz Yisroh. It's interesting, right? Because it wasn't a Jewish center. After 1492, when the Jews were expelled from Spain... So some of the Sephardim moved to Turkish Palestine. To be very exact, the Turks took it over in 1517, so it's a little bit later, but nevertheless, you get the idea. By the time I'm talking about the 16th century, Eretz Israel, a part of the Turkish Empire, here, let's take this map. Yeah, the, the, uh, the Barbeno lived exactly at that time. He said, the Barbeno writes explicitly that uh, 1492 is Ikfus of the Meshifa. Uh, many of the Jews of Spain saw their own persecution at the hands of the Inquisition and burning at stake and all that as a fulfillment of the book of Daniel. And the commentary of the Barbanel is remarkable. It's a fact book. And he ties everything to his time. You know, when Daniel says people will stumble, he says it's like this rabbi over here. He says when the, when, when the few will stand firm, he says it's like me and these guys over here. And then when people will tremble, that's, you know, because they're afraid of the Inquisition. He ties it exactly to his, to his age. And I don't blame him. Okay? And the Barbanel, of course, lived at that time. But the Jews, the Sephardim, are kicked out of Spain and they go to this, to the Turkish Empire, which you see over here, okay? which is identical to the Middle East and beyond. Now, under Suleiman, the Turks actually conquered, as you can see, a third of Europe. But, and a lot of Sephardim moved here, no question about it. A lot of Sephardim moved here. That's where you get your Bulgarian Jews and your uh, Serbian Jews and Greek Jews and t- what we call Turkish Jews and so forth. But some went here. Oops. That's Israel. Right? Somewhere here? and that's where you get the famous community of Sfa, of Saffod, in the 1500s, okay? Um, which is primarily Sephardic. In Sphaz, which the Jews moved to because the climate is better, the health therefore is better. Once upon a time, there's no medicine. And so if you live in the lowlands in Israel and the summer comes, you get knocked off, you know, I mean, with the, with the mosquitoes, the Arabs went down like, I was going to say like flies, but the flies are the ones that took them down. You know, nobody knew at that time that things carry malaria and all this, but if you live high up, there's no guarantee, but it's much better health, you understand? So, and the water is better, so the Jews uh, go in, in fair numbers to Svaz and uh, that becomes an important Jewish uh, community, and it's not only Jewish community, they definitely feel it's ikviz and the because they say like this, what happened to the Jews in Sepharad? Look, we were so, let's move back. We were so important community, and they were, and so powerful, and it was the largest community. And then suddenly in 1492, the king and the queen did a stupid thing, kicked everybody out in such a cruel way, and half the Jews converted, and the other half suffered terribly on the way. It cannot be that it has no meaning. It must have meaning, and the, the best meaning we can give it is, it's the final pangs. Before the coming of their redemption. In that case, we're willing to put up with it. You know what I mean? In other words, then my suffering, imagine, I mean, God forbid, imagine somebody lost kids or lost family, all the rest of it. They said, why? Why? But if you say it's all part of some biblical process, all right, you know, after all, soon to be Trius anyway. You know, that's, that's how people thought. And so the result is that uh, messianism in the air. People really felt genuinely that she was around the corner. Erenuvalo Atah, Karov. No, ki Karov. It's going to happen. And uh, many are familiar with the famous Semicha controversy that rages in the first half of the 1500s in Some people want to bring back the Sanhedrin. These are the two books that fought it out. Yaakov e. Rav was a big Sephardic rabbi, and the Raul Bach was also. He was in favor of reconstituting the Sanhedrin, he was opposed to reconstituting Sanhedrin. Why did he want to make a Sanhedrin? You know what I'm talking about? Long ago, you had a Jewish congreg- authoritative body, a Sanhedrin, which could legislate. Um, going back to, to, to Moshe Rabbeinu. Remember at one point, Moshe said, I can't stand this anymore. Kill me. I can't stand the Jews. And God said, take it easy. We'll get you help. We'll get you 70 helpers. That's the Sanhedrin. Right? They'll, they'll bear the burden with you. And that's an institution that went on for 1,000 years, 2,000 years. But eventually, the Romans destroyed it. And so ever since then, which is what, the 300s, the four, actually early 400s, we don't have in Judaism with Sanhedrin. Uh, many people don't notice. You can't make a drabona nowadays. It's not possible. You can't make a gazero. You know, a scholar or a rabbi can say like this, I hold you should do this way, and those who want to follow can follow. Nobody can paskin a new law, you see? But in Tzfat, in the 1500s, they said, we want to do it. Why do they want to do it? I'll tell you why they want to do it. They said, because first of all, they all held that they're Chayv Karas, because a lot of them uh, had had uh, been Catholics for a while before they ran away from Spain. And Chayv Karas means you lose your Olam Haba and other terrible things as a spiritual punishment. And there's an opinion in the Mishnah that says, has the word Chayv shonilk and says, that if you get malchus by a duly appointed Sanhedrin, right? knows so if you had a real basin, and we don't have a real basin now, I'm talking about the Sanhedrin types then that would excuse you from the chorus that you get off. So it's a good deal. Let me get 39 lashes, and then I have to worry about my immortal soul. So I'm just trying to show you, people didn't think in normal terms the way we think in America today. They thought in pre-Messianic terms, and that things are about to change, and we're prepared for radical measures. Now, it didn't happen because they needed unanimity, and they didn't get unanimity, but I'm just trying to show you that the 16th century was a time when these kinds of, uh, feelings are very powerful among Jews, particularly among the Sephardim. Uh, in addition to what I just said, there emerged in Tzfa in the 1500s, just a whole galaxy of famous Kabbalists who were the real thing, right off the bat. I mean, uh, you know, Reshulam you Al-Kabetz, know, you, know, you heard of him, that's the for Moshe Kordaviro, who's yard say was the other day, the Arizal, and they just the main ones. It's a lot more than them. And so these are the people who are the fathers of, shall I say, the modern Kabbalah? I mean, if that's the right way to put it, um, these are the big, these are the big guns. Okay, and uh, what emerges now is uh, the revival of prophecy. <laughs> right? By the way, Tzfat is heavy in Nigla also, real. so Kara was there and the Mabit. It was it was quite a community. Uh, you know, I mean, it was really rocking, considering it wasn't that many thousand people. But nevertheless, the Kabbalistic aspect is, is, is extreme. And so they emerge these people who are big in the Kabul, and then the Ari shows up. Now, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm going to read you very briefly over here from the Art Scroll, not for me. Uh, What he says about the Arizo, it's not that long. And uh, he said 1534, 1572. So, you know, as you see, um, the Ari lived to be uh, only 38, and Cordover lived to be only 48, and the other two live in their 70s. And as he says over here, uh, that he lost his father when he was an infant, he's born in Yerushalayim, he moved from Jerusalem with his mother to Egypt, to his brother's uh, brother-in-law's estate. said so Arizal lived most of his life in Mitzrayim. Uh, there the Arizal got a formal Talmudic education with the rabbis of Ashkenazi. It's so like you'd say today, he went to Yeshiva. And a young age, he was already a big Talmud Chachim and so forth. In 1549, which means when he's 15 years old, he marries his cousin, his uncle's daughter. His uncle was the one who was a rich man in Egypt and um, was the tax gatherer for the king. And he continued his studies undisturbed as his uncle provided for all his needs. Following his marriage, he put six years into heavy-duty yeshiva studies. After this period, so what is he, uh, 21, 22 years old, um, they re-began to immerse themselves in the study of Kabbalah. Uh, now, there's, I can't help share this story with even so, i just don't get a mice off, but they, they say over there, the the Ari Yitzhak Luria Ashkenazi. He was in a shul in Cairo, and he went to Damidche in one of the shuls, and he saw a guy holding a a sitter upside down. This is how the story goes. And he went to the guy, not meaning to do anything. You know, the world is full of two types, I've learned, the math and science types and the history and English types. Math and science guy can't stand if you're holding the book upside down. The history and English guy said, leave him alone, you know. But he was that type. And so... He went over and he turned it upside down, and the guy got very angry. He said, what are you trying to embarrass me in public? He was a Murano who just got out of Spain and Portugal. And he came near, and he didn't know anything. He's just trying to integrate a Jewish community. Why do you have to embarrass me publicly? And he said, I, guess, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean anything wrong. Excuse me. You know, more power to you, all the rest of it. But then he said, I guess, that's a funny-looking sitter. And to make a long story short, the guy had bought something at the Chopsi's, and it was a Zohar. And uh, the stories I read, he said, let me buy the book from you. And he bought the book, and the rest of my friends is history. Okay? So if it didn't happen, Barrel Wine will make sure it happens. Now, <laughs> wait a second. So after this period, he began to immerse himself in the study of the Kabbalah. He would spend the weekdays in a house near the Nile River, where he would pray and study in complete solitude and return home for Shabbos where he would converse only in Lush and Kodesh. His saintliness was obvious to all who saw him, and all were awed by his appearance. So here he is living, really, a very quiet and retired life, almost by himself, um, in Mitzrayim. Uh, he has no dages parnoso he does not have to worry about living, because his, his wife's father was rich. And, uh, and, he, and he's really, you know, uh, doing things on his own and devoting himself into this. And by the way, and he is not some... Uh, you know, fool who picks a Kabbalah book out of nowhere. He's very learned already, he's a scholar, and so forth. The Ari attained great heights in comprehension of Kabbalah and surpassed his predecessors. You know what I'm saying? Surpassed his predecessors means usually in Judaism you say the one from the early century was greater than one from the later century. But there's exceptions. And here's an exception. Um, you won't believe what I'm about to tell you, but there's some place where it says that, that the Ari is greater than Moshe Ravinu. Although the Balatani goes to say, they don't mean it literally, but they mean it this way, that way. But you don't make statements like this in Judaism ordinarily. I'm trying to show you the normal rules are put aside when this discourse appears in Jewish life. So don't be shocked when a hundred years later you're going to find Sabbatianism and other. Um, so he attained greater heights and surpassed his predecessors. Eliyahu Hanavi would instruct him in the sacred teachings of Kabbalah and revealed to him previously unknown mysteries. It was Eliyahu who revealed to him that he was to make Aliyah to Israel and settle in spot where he was to redeem, transmit all of his teachings to a person he never met yet, named Chaim who was because Dari was soon going to depart from this world. So basically, he so said, you're going to be dead in a few years, and I want you to teach your stuff, whatever you can, to this person in Israel before you go. There, so it's a spooky story. Dari arrived in, in, in the year 1570, so he's uh, 36 years old, um, and immediately went to the house of Ramusha Cordovera, who was up there on the board, who was a famous Kabbalist at that time. Uh, but shortly afterwards, like very shortly afterwards, the Ramosh Kordavira died, and the Ari gave him a famous hespit, which I won't go into now. After the death of Ramosh Kordavira, the Ari was recognized as the greatest Kabbalist of his generation, and also as a holy man, with the power to perform miracles, read a person's thoughts, and predict the future. In keeping with the instructions of El Novi, he occupied himself primarily with instructing this person of Chaim Batal, who he met in Tzvahat, Rochai invited other disciples to join their studies, but Dari was displeased, according to the story, with this kind of publicity. More than once he rebuked the student for involving other disciples in their studies and warned that he would regret this action. Rochai, wishing to share his knowledge with colleagues, persistent in practice. Some say that the reason he died at the age of 38 was due to this fact. Except, and, and, and that's pretty much the way it goes. Except Now listen closely. Except for a few notations, Dehari wrote nothing left no writings. So what do you have, Askinu Sudosa, you know, things like that. Here's a person that has all this stuff, and but was not a writer. That's not who he was. He was a tucker. And he, disciple-wise, he hung around with this person for two years, and they conversed in the secrets of the Kabbalah, more or less 24-7, you know, and it was all the time. But he wrote nothing. Um, in fact, they say it was such a flow, wisdom was impossible to commit to, 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 uh, to writing. So that means that when you get to the year 1572, I'm not making this up. So when you get to the year 1572, we have to, and the re-passes uh, away, so then we have to follow the story. I'm not finished with the story. With this Ruf who is born in Sfat, from Italian background. And here I am, I'm, I'm moving uh, 50 pages later in this book to the uh, bio of Haim Vital, and uh, notice what I'm trying to say is like this: everything I'm sharing with you is what the Kabbalists say; it's not what, what I say. Uh Reb Chaim's father was from Calabrizi. From a young age, he was a great uh, scholar and he was a smicha and this and that and the other. Now, Reb Chaim Vital—that's uh, Chaim and Vital—the same word, isn't that true? Mm. Vital, vital. Yeah, exactly. So he says Reb Chaim used his Kabbali, uh, began his Kabbalistic studies under Moshe Cordovero who was a famous Kabbal not as great as D'ari, but still very famous. He attained a thorough knowledge in this field. In the age of 26, he began writing a commentary on the Old Zohar, according to the shita of the Ramosh Chordaviro. In the year 1570, was a turning point. So that means he's... 1570, he's uh, what? Uh, uh, what do you call it? 30, it's, 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 what's wrong with me? 27, right? So, um, uh, yeah, 27. So, as a turning point in his life. It was that year that the Arizal established his home in Sfat with the express purpose of transmitting his secrets and sacred kabbalistic stuff to Reb Chaim, and he became the foremost disciple and expounder of a school of thought. At beginning, we're told Reb Chaim had difficulty comprehending the intricate secrets which the Ari revealed to him. Once, when they were both in Tavaria, they went on a ride in a small boat, and at a certain spot, he said, "Drink the water out of here from Tavaria, and that was the Be'er Miriam, where it was located. And as a result of that, he had a. Powers of comprehension they formerly didn't have, he was able to understand. The Ari who committed now here is the main point I want to share with you. The Ari who committed almost nothing of his vast teachings to writing, I mentioned that before, relied solely upon Ruchain Vital to accurately transcribe his kabbalistic system and work for future generations, and disregarded attempts by other disciples in their field as their writings had shortcomings due to a lack of proper comprehension. When the Ari died in 1572. Rav Batal was recognized as his successor, uh, for only he was trusted by the master to accurately transmit his thoughts to writing. They even signed a document that they found in the 20th century uh, about that in the Karlin stolen uh, uh, archives. Now, like his teacher, Rav was known as a saintly man. He could perform miracles. He remained in Swat for a few years. And in 1578, he already moved to Jerusalem, where he was a dying. And then eventually he moved and, and lived the rest of his life in Damascus. So here's a person, isn't that funny? Here's a person who lived to be 77 and lived uh, probably the majority of his life, I think, or a lot of it, in Syria, in Damascus. That's where it was. Khaen, now, what did he do during these years? Right, what did he do? Rav devoted his attention to arranging the Kabbalistic dissertations he heard from the re in proper sequence in order to represent a complete doctrine in the school of thought. So basically, understand the person who has like a big treasure chest, like from Treasure Island, a huge thing, and he's got thousands of pieces of notes. Right? Because they didn't have the spiral like nowadays. And so he went with Daria and he talked over everything. He came home and he wrote it down. Another time, another thing. Another time, another. But it's in no order. One time is all talking about Gilgal. Another time he's talking about who is Bilaam. Another time he's talking about Hilka Shabbos. Another time talking about this. It's all in this chest. And now that is passed on, so how does it work exactly? How do you put it all into order? Okay. And that's what he spends decades doing. Now, this was not for publication. It's not what you think. You know, he wanted to write it, and he'll publish the book if they read all the rest of it. No, well, let me let me read it over here. This work was called Eitz Chaim, divided into several parts, etc. He kept these manuscripts tightly locked away, not allowing anyone to see them, as he feared he would be punished with his life shortening for disseminating the secrets of the Torah. Notice he didn't want to die at thirty-eight or something like this, like his master. Once, when he was seriously ill, his brother accepted 500 gold coins in return for a key to a lock, lock closet. Now, he used to keep this on the treasure chest with a key. And the key, I think, was around his neck, if I remember correctly. And he was sick from malaria. And so he like, well, you can take the key off, okay, and open it up. Within three days, about 100 scribes copied most of the manuscripts, which were subsequently returned to the original place. I think they call these the 600 uh, pages. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? In other words, imagine a big cafeteria somewhere, or something like that, or a couple of shuls in spot, and imagine that this is all planned beforehand, Operation Kabbalah, and imagine, you know, that uh, Yisrael over here is one of the hundred scribes, and they say like this, write this stuff down accurately, as quickly as you can, and then give it back, and we'll have other stuff for you, and, this, and so on for all of them, and please don't make mistakes. Okay, and then we got to stuff, put the stuff back before he recovers from the illness, you know, and, and gets angry. It was thus that the kabbalistic doctrine of the re began to circulate among the kabbalists of Israel. That's a screwball way. Eh? You know, see, in other words, it's not that re came down, wrote a book, like the Rambam, or somebody gets laid it all out, and someone. No, that didn't happen at all. Nor even during Chaim Vital. No, that at all. Okay, I mean they stole the stuff out of there. Did they get in the right uh, sequence? Uh, did they copy it right? Did they know what they're saying? Did these Rahl Markowitz make a mistake? Did he not make a mistake? You know, look, like, how do you know? It was thus that he began circulating around Israel. Even after he put down the, the, these uh, kabbalistic ideas in writing, he still devoted considerable time and energy to elucidating his master's teaching. He wrote explanations of difficult points, clarified concepts, resolved contradictions in the Rizal system. These are known as the Madura Basra. Rokhaim did not want these writings published, and he had them buried in the cemetery. So they were in the cemetery in Damascus, and you're not supposed to open them. And he died in 1620. However, 20 years later, two Kabbalists said they had a dream, and they said, exhume it and, and publish it. Okay? Rabbi Yaakov Tzemek, a rabbi in the dream, got permission from him to exhume the manuscripts, and they did so. These manuscripts, along with the ones that were stolen, as we said before, um, formed the nucleus in the many books of what we call the, the Kisvi Arizal. So there is no such thing, literally, as the Kisvi no such thing as the writings by the Ari. There's what I just described to you. So when you talk about Shabdai who's a 17th-century phenomenon in, in the 1600s, as we'll see, you're talking about a Jewish world in which what? Ideas are floating out there, right and left. Imagine, it's like telephone, by the time they get to the Poland or the time to get over here, and I haven't even discussed with you, because I don't want to get too technical, that there were some other students of the Ari who just said, we know what it's all about, and they went to Europe and, and published their own books and gave their own lectures and Kabbalists in Europe wrote things based on their teachings, so we have an incredible confusion of, of, of ideas out there, the like of which did not exist in the Middle Ages. You understand? The like of which did not exist in the Middle Ages. Like what's, And everybody is the same thing. Can you give it to me clear, basically? You know, <laughs> and, and, and it's very hard to do that. In the 18th century, there will be famous attempts by uh, great people to put but he called the whole Rizal stuff into some kind of a system that you and I could understand. Um, actually, the Tanya is, 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 is one of those. right? Um, the writings of the Ramchal, who lived in the 1700s, are among those. And there are others as well. But even that's hard, and if you're talking about before these books existed, it's really hard and nothing was published in a printing press. Meaning, none of the 600 pages and these sort of things were actually published as such until the like, 1780s until 1780s, by the Chassinim. And so, when you talk about people in the time of Shabbat Tzvi, and afterwards, or, and before, basing things on the Kisari, it's manuscripts. Uh, you live wherever you live, there is a printing press, but this is not being published, people make copies. Yeshiva guys are interested in this, or Kabbalists are interested in this, in Venice, in, in Hamburg, in uh, Morocco, and Yemen, in Persia, they make copies from other copies tell me about that, okay? So you begin, I'm just trying to give you, if you don't understand the context, you understand what's happening beforehand, you can have absolutely no idea of how such a big bubble could could pop up in the middle of Jewish people and have everybody believe it, you understand? You, 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 you can have no, no idea like that. And so uh, the result is that uh, whether in perfect form or non-perfect form, the Kisri Ari uh, is accepted, meaning it got out there, and the consensus formed that there is not a nut. It really happens. He got Nevoa. You might not call it Nevoa. You can call it other names, but he got messages from upstairs. And then other people will pop up and say they got messages from upstairs. This usually doesn't happen in Judaism, but it does if you're living in the 1500s, 1600s. Especially when you make the claims that this is stuff that, that no one knew before, and they have it at a higher level than, than it's ever been known before. uh I would even go so far as to say that the spread of the Luria and Kabbalah is recognized by historians as one of the most important chapters in uh, Jewish history. Uh, just want to share with you very briefly over here that there's a different reception history among the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim with this, because this stuff starts to s- disseminate around the year 1600, 1610, whatever, to actually get out there and, and, and spread throughout the Jewish world. And people say that this stuff is really true. And um, among the Sephardim, for example, it takes a little while. But the Svartans just reinvent themselves to reorganize themselves along a result, Lurianic lines. Uh, the best example I can think of off the top of my head is Kaparis, where uh, I'm sure many people know the Rambam, the Riff, and Rabbi Yosef Karim the Shulchan Aruch says, You can't do the chickens because it's paganism. Right? It's Daki Mori. Uh, but the we will do it today. right? And he say, Oh, because the Arizah, we didn't know. We thought it's Daki Mori. But after you see what the results explained that it's not, oh, then we're the first ones to do it and so on and so forth across the board. The Ashkenazim had a much more different, much more interesting reception, to my mind, because when this stuff hit in the early 1600s, Germany and Poland was at the glory days of the old Ashkenaz. The time of the Ramon, the Marshall, the Marshall, people are like, just take it from me. It's big names. And the uh, customs and self-image of the Ashkenaz is, we are the real thing because my great-grandfather was Rashi, and it often was true, or Tosa or something like that, and Rashi said, this is the way you put on tefillin, and this is the way you daven, and Tosa said, this is what we do in Yom Kippur, and that's the end of it. So what did they do with the fact that their rezal said, no, you have to do it differently All the rest of it? It's the classic case of the irresistible force versus the movable object. You yes, understand? We have response to Tshubh, a very famous one, the Marshal, for example, is very well known, who was a big Ashkenazic rabbi uh, in Poland, I'm very big, and they ask the question about how you put the tefillin on Do you stand up? Do you sit down? All the rest of it. He said, here's what he writes, not me. He says, if Hashem Yuchai walked in this room and said, do it this way, we say, no, this is us, this is the way we do it. You understand? That's it. <laughs> because my father wasn't wrong and his father wasn't wrong and Rashi definitely wasn't wrong. In order to do, do what you're saying, I'd have to say everybody was wrong. That's crazy. You understand? Um, I'll, I'll give you even a better example. Uh, Der Rizal is supposed to have said, there's a report of saying, that uh, you've heard of the Nusachari, of course, a certain form of davening. So what about the old Nusach Ashkenaz? So you say like this, listen, ancient times there was a different tribes, and every tribe had its own Nusach of davening because the, the soul of somebody from, from the tribe of Yamin is different than the soul of somebody from Yehuda or Yisach or Zewon, Don, Naftali, God, Usher. Therefore, in order for the stuff to get into heaven the right way, the words have to be organized in different ways. So if you're an Ashkenaz, if you're a, a ruven guy, you're diving from a shim and siddur. and not going to work out well, right? But the ari, who knew all this, wrote the, what they call it, like a shah, kolil. you know, one, one, size, like, one size fits all. And basically the idea goes like this. If you take this as it's, as it's stated, you want your prayers to get into heaven and not be blocked by some uh, roadblock or traffic jam, you've got to do it in this ari. Okay? Now, uh, this ran into Ashkenaz. <laughs> right? And they're like, this is crazy. Now, they did believe this. Get it? this. Is, this is why I say the Arizal was for the object. They did believe in the in, in, in the Arizal, and so what he's saying must be true. On the other hand, it's not possible. Like I would say today, you tell me the Chafetz Chaim and his prayer didn't get to heaven. You try and tell me the Vilnagon, when he prayed it, it didn't get when the Rambam daven, it didn't get to heaven. Are you nuts? You see, so they end up saying in Ashkenaz they end up saying like this. They say that the Arizal was writing for an elite, and for them this is true. But for the masses which is 99.99% of us, right? Even the big rabbis, we go with Minhag of Yodena. Get it? But in every town in Europe, every important community in Europe in the 16th-1700s, just want you to know that they developed something called the cloise. And in many, which is a certain type of super and in many of these places the klois, like in Brody for example, in Vilna, uh, the cloise would be occupied by a very small but elite group of scholars and they would daven from the Nusagari, and they would have Kabbalistic customs, but that way you make it that you know it's true, but it's not meant for the masses; it's meant only for a few. In this differentiating kind of way, they sort of tried to square the circle, as it were. And when the Hasidic movement arose, Balshantov uh, and uh, afterwards, the main attack against the Hasidim was launched by the Chozers. You understand? Because and, and if you read the original nusach of the Cherims that were published against the Hasidic movement, they like, say, who the heck are you? This is only for the elite." Why do you say every time Dick and Harry out there can join a Hasidic Show and start davening Nusuf uh, Tzad and all the rest of it? So these are the kinds of funny things that uh, moved in there. So what can I say? The masses know some ideas. They obviously don't really understand Kabbalah. And um, how this will affect Messianism, the hour is late, so I'll close it down over here and pick it up next time. But I think I've set the stage for an era of uh, tremendous chidushim sweeping the Jewish world and a tremendous confusion Sweeping in there. And I haven't even touched the question what happens in the post our time if a guy says, I'm the Mashiach. Now you understand something of the background when this will pop up in the 1660s in Turkey with that person known as Safçaytzi. Good night. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbydovidkatz.com.